Hello and welcome. You're listening to New Books in Buddhist Studies on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Trevor McManus, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Rick McBride about his book, Doctrine and Practice in Medieval Korean Buddhism, The Collected Works of Chun. Welcome to the show, Rick. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for having me. So I thought we'd start off the interview by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your academic interests, and how you came to write this work. Um, I earned a PhD in in Korean and Chinese Buddhism and early Korean history from UCLA. And although my primary interest in Buddhism is kind of the medieval period, which stretches roughly from, we could really say kind of like the 5th, 6th century all the way up through the 12th century. Most most of my research has dealt with kind of the Sui Tang kind of northern dynasties um, and Sui Tang Buddhism, which corresponds to the Shilla period of Korean history. Now, how I got involved with the writings of Wichun um, really comes to a, 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 a grant that UCLA got uh, a number of years ago, and I earned my PhD at UCLA under Robert Buswell, and there was a grant to translate a lot of the the classic works of, of Korean history, literature, religion, philosophy. And um, so I was asked to find a text. And I'd always been very interested in Wichun, who was a a prince of the Koryo kingdom who became a monk at a very young age and then who went to China and basically sort of fled and, and ran away because his first his father and then his brother, who were the kings, wouldn't let him go to China. And, um, and he's sort of famous because he collected, he's the first person that we really know of who collected all the extant scholarly writings, all the commentaries and what I like to call curricular materials that were available of the, in the Buddhism of his time. And of course, he had the wealth of the Koryo kingdom, the, the Koryo royal family to help him. And one of the reasons why Chun is famous is that he made what earlier scholars called sort of the first... Um, sort of uh, addendum. It's sort of the the first, kind of the first Shu Zhang Jing, the, the first collection of ex, uh, sort of extra commentaries. And that's one of the reasons why he's kind of famous. And, and because he went to China and we have letters and poems and things that he wrote to people, he provides us a very interesting window into this very interesting time of East Asian Buddhism. Um, we often see the image in a sense, you know, it, by, by studying Buddhism, we imagine the Tang period as this sort of fantastic period of Buddhist flourishing. And yet Buddhism really continued to flourish later on into the Song dynasty. And our image of Tang Buddhism is really flavored by the Song period. Um, the Song dynasty people were the people that basically said Tang dynasty Buddhism was the best. And, and of course, what's interesting is 
that it's in the Song Dynasty that the practices that sort of became the core practices of the mainstream Chan, Sun, Zen tradition, this is when they finally sort of coalesce and have their, they sort of reach their, their maturation. They reach this period of maturity. But there's always this looking back. And, and Wei Chun, he had access to books and commentaries and things that had been lost in China. And his, his collected works provide this interesting window. Another thing is, Buddhist monks don't usually have collected works. And so to have the extant collected works of a Buddhist monk is really interesting. Um, it's unique in many ways. And so these are some of the things that drew me to wanting to look at Wechun. And um, and of course we can talk more about this. Many of these, many of these aspects of this sort of come out in this first book. And this work that you've done is one of the first that really in English that really provides a concise view of, of Wee Chun through his writing. Is that correct? That's true. Um, scholars of, you know, Japanese scholars of Buddhism became very interested in Wee Chun back in the 1930s and 40s. And a, a really exceptional book came out back at, at that time. And it, it, of course, sort of talked about the importance of Wechun and kind of bringing together and bringing into one place these commentaries. Now, you know, for those of us who study East Asian Buddhism, to understand the thought, the the, doc, the developments of doctrine and other kinds of things, we rely heavily on the Taisho Shinshu, Shinshu mm-hmm. Daizokyo, this Taisho edition of the Buddhist canon. And of course, it has sutras, but then it also has this large body of commentaries as well. Well, very seldom, you know, it's sort of with Wechun and in his time that we begin to see monks in East Asia thinking about this concept of their intellectual tradition, this mm-hmm. sort of, this sort of the you know, the East Asian Buddhism as a whole, they certainly didn't think of the way we often think about it in scholarship today, where we talk about Japanese Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism. They saw themselves as belonging to this universal Buddhist tradition. And Wee Chun was one of the first people, although I really think from some of the research that I've done, he was sort of following something which was a common kind of feeling temples and monasteries that had that had libraries and archives they had works by famous monks and those works had been published in woodblock and other sorts of things or there were manuscript copies and Weechun was the first one to kind of want to bring all of these things together and make what he called what he called a kyojang this canon of doctrinal teachings now what's interesting about this is he does not include writings that we associate with the Chan or the, the Zen tradition, the Sun tradition in Korea. Although he certainly engages in meditation, okay, but he what's one of the things that's interesting interesting about Wee Chun is his somewhat of a, his animosity. Now, part of this animosity towards the 
what we would can call the, the general Zen tradition. It's in part because the Zen tradition was sort of claiming that the scriptures and the commentaries and all these sorts of words were not necessary. And Wee Chen himself is arguing that, no, far from their not being necessary, it's the scriptures and these doctrinal traditions This pr- provide us the insights that we need to really make the kind of spiritual progress that that people need to make to become bodhisattvas, to become enlightened. And so forth, and and so by he's so to a certain extent, Weichun brings this collection together, and it's published, and it's probably the copies from you know copies of copies, but of the things that Weichun bought together and edited in the late you know in the ten eighties and the ten nineties that provide an important basis for the. The, the extant commentaries that we have today in Japan and in Korea, there are a number of addition, you know, there are a number of additions of commentaries that seem, you know, they're extant additions or woodblock additions that seem to come from, from Wee Chun's um, collection of these commentarial works. And in a sense, they were kind of preserved because at that time period, Wee Chen kind of brought them together from lots of disparate sources. And so he's, um, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why I have written about Wee Chen and continue to do work on Wee Chen is that he's a sort of very important hero of East Asian Buddhism that is well known in Japan. Um, Japanese scholars constantly refer to Wee Chen's catalog which is what we have left is his catalog of all the books that he collected from China, from the Kitan Liao dynasty, from Japan, from, in, from within Koryo Korea itself, and brought together. We have his catalog, so we know that kind of this is what was available in that snapshot in time. And it gives us an idea of sort of the rich wealth of, of not only commentaries, but scholarly essays as well as what I like to call these curricular materials that helped monks prepare for examinations on Buddhist sutras and prepare, you know, in, in Korea and Japan, monks took, took exams to prepare them or qualify them to participate in lecture discussions and other kinds of things. And these, their, their, their success in these kinds of exams brought them prestige in China, the evidence seems to suggest that it was through um, monks had to take an exam to qualify to become a monk. And usually they memorized the, the Lotus Sutra because it was just long enough to sort of prove that they could memorize this kind of material. But in, you know, and, but in Korea and Japan, examinations and mastery of the Buddhist scriptures was a way to bring prestige and to earn titles, which which gave them access to opportunities for sort of greater fame and other kinds of things. So it's a very, you know, it, 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 this gives us kind of a very interesting picture when we, when we look at Wee Chen's writings. Yeah, indeed. It's very fascinating. Now on that note, you mentioned in the introduction of your book about sort of this conventional way of, of viewing uh, Buddhism through kind of a sectarian goggles, like associating 
figures with their sect and with a specific doctrine. But that that's really hard to do with Weichun, isn't it? Well, some of my colleagues think it is. And it, now the thing is, it's certainly true that Weichun was, he became a monk and he trained under monks who were respected and at monasteries that were closely associated with what we call the Huayan tradition in China, the Hualm tradition in Korea. And certainly, um, you know, as I as I sort of demonstrate in the book, there are several there are poems as well as other materials where Weichun basically says his job, one of his jobs as a monk, in a sense, his sort of career as a monk, he lectured on the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra in eighty rolls, the one that was translated. Um, at the very end of the seventh century and the beginning of the eighth century, and then on the the Chinese monk Cheng Guan's commentary on that in East Asia, very much like the Confucian tradition, when people would read the Confucian classics, they read it along with a commentary, one that explained what the correct meaning was supposed to be. Well, Wei Chen's job was to teach monks the Avatamsaka Sutra. And then, and then use the commentary of Chengguan, which was he was one of the the main commentators of this tradition. Lived in the from basically the mid eighth to the mid ninth century, and and he was to you know to teach and to train and to sort of have monks understand that sort of doctrinal tradition, and that was his regular job. And so, the the conventional way that people have looked at Weichun was to say, okay, he started out as a Huayan monk, but then when he went to China, and even though when he went to China, he studied with one of the great Huayan masters of the time, Jingyuan, who was down in Hangzhou, even though he studied with him, okay, he must have turned away from the Huayan tradition to the Tiantai tradition, because in his collected works, we have his going to the funerary pagoda and where um, Tiantai Juri essentially was buried and where his remains were installed. And he makes a vow that, he's, that he will spread Juri's teachings in Korea. Okay. Now, when you view this through a a sectarian lens, then that has to be Weichun gives up his membership in the Huayan sect and takes up membership in the Tiantai sect. Okay? But when you actually read a lot of the other things that Weichun talks about, and we know from things that he did, you know, even after he returned to Korea, to Koryo, he maintained relations with his mentor and had in the Huayan tradition and the royal family of Koryo continually sent donations, sent money to Jingyuan's monastery, okay, to build it. And he, you know, he gave gifts 
including a very expensive copy of the Avatamsaka Sutra to Jingyuan. And so it doesn't sound like he gave up his membership and became a sole proponent of Tiantai Buddhism. And then on top of that, when, you know, there are several very interesting kind of texts of admonitions that he gives to his students, and all of these are translated in the book, where not only does he talk about, you know, one of the things that's very true is throughout the text, he always refers to people like Chengguan and Fadzang and people in the Huayan tradition as his mentors, as his spiritual teachers. Now, the the Huayan master, who was also a Zen master, Zongmi, he does also refer to my teacher, my mentor. But obviously, you know, he only refer and he and he certainly refers to Jingwen as his as his mentor. But he never refers to Tiantai Juri as his mentor in his in his extant collected works. Okay, and so now, of course, this leads to something that can be seen as sort of a a debate. There are some scholars that you know. There are some scholars that would suggest that because Wei Chun belonged to the Huayan tradition in Koryo, the compilation of his collected works was edited by those people who, you know, were proponents of Huayan, and therefore they took out anything that would say otherwise. But you know, I think what's very interesting is. The, the teachings, the admonitions he gives to his students not only say you need to study Huayan Buddhism, but basically they say you need to study Yogacara, but on top of that, you need to study the, basically everything. And so this is one of the reasons why I want to challenge this very sectarian view. For Chun, he sees all the doctrinal traditions as preserving important things, and you need all of this. And in this respect, um, he is very much like uh, his personal hero, who is the Shilla monk Wonhyo. The the Shilla monk Wonhyo is sort of renowned, and to some people who I remember a number of years ago when I was. Um, I've worked on this project of the collected works of of Wenhyo, um, along with Robert Beswell and other scholars. And uh, John McRae was translating Wenhyo's um, Doctrinal Essentials of the Lotus Sutra. And he, I remember being in a sort of a conference with him, and he was sort of frustrated. He found Wenhyo frustrating because Wenhyo does not pick sides. In China, the standard thing for monks is when you do doctrinal classification, you have to say which doctrines are the most important, which ones are just under that, and which ones are under that, and you sort of put things in a hierarchical order. Well, Wenhyo didn't do that. He basically tries to explain how every, he tries to reconcile all disputes. And there are poems and other things in several places where Wei Chun basically talks about how Wenhyo is his personal hero. And it's it's very interesting in that he commends commentaries. You know, there's a, a very interesting letter where he sort of commends this commentary 
on the on um, I believe it's the Diamond Sutra, and basically says, "Hey, he, and he's sending this to his mentor Jingyuan, saying, "Hey, you need to read this one who has really interesting things to say," and and so in a sense, we China, in a, in a sense, it's kind of a throwback, preserving the kind of sort of all inclusive view of Buddhism. That was pop, you know. That was seems to have been popular, and I and I think that this is a much better way of sort of viewing the Buddhism of of the Sui and Tang periods. People did not just merely have one mentor; they studied with all people and tried to make sense of. They tried to make sense of all Buddhism and kind of and they and look at it from from a sort of larger a larger perspective. Now, of course, the Avatamsaka Sutra. Being one of the the Shuangbi, one of these twin jewels of of East Asian of, of Chinese Buddhist intellectual thought, it tries to bring it brings everything together, and and I think for Weichun, the all inclusiveness and of of the Avatamsaka tradition of the perfect teaching or the teaching of perfect interfusion, this was a way that he wanted to envision Buddhism. And to be honest, if you look back on Weichun's teachers, um, certainly Jingyuan, people like Jingyuan, it's hard to say that the Huayan Buddhism of the 11th century was a sectarian Huayan. It really, the, the Huayan and Tiantai traditions, they shared a lot. They had different ways of sort of understanding how the teachings were put together. But they shared a lot intellectually, and especially when it came to sort of Buddhist rituals and and um, and sort of the the kinds of ways to get lay people involved. There was a lot that the doctrinal tradition shared because they, in a sense, had to they had to face the challenge of the rising power of the Chan traditions, and so. Um, I, you know, Weichun is this is very interesting character right in that time. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And what's interesting to me is, I it seems to me that even in modern Korean Buddhism, this kind of paradigm persists. I I don't I can't speak for the whole country, but while I was living there, I remember visiting Songgwangsa and and asking one of the monks. Uh, we were primarily talking about sun or Zen, but I, I said, are there people here doing other practices like pure land practices? And he basically told me, yeah, you know, people here pretty much do all sorts of practices. What the monks practice, what they want to practice. And, and then certainly, as you noted in your book, this type of desire for synthesis was also followed up by um, the famous monk, Pojo Chinger. Is That's correct, right? Definitely, definitely. And in fact, so, you know, one of the reasons why I've liked to stick with people studying doctrinal Buddhism is because my great teacher, Robert Buswell, of course, his fame has come from translating the collected works of, of Jinul and, and sort of working on the, on the Chan position. But, and so the interesting thing is, you know, so Jinul himself and and I have I have a, a colleague named George Keyworth who keeps encouraging me to write a paper up about this. I mean, 
Genal himself, one of his enlightenment experiences comes from reading um, Li Tongxuan's commentary on the Avatamsaka Sutra. And in some ways, and you know, insights from the Avatamsaka are very important in all of Chan Buddhism, all of Sun Buddhism. Okay. But certainly in Korea, and it's interesting that you mentioned Song Gwangsa. You know, Song Gwangsa itself, I mean, they have, there's a whole little wing of the monastery where there's like a Huayan Hall. And a couple of years ago, I, I, George Keyworth and I, we took a group of, of scholars at that monastery. They preserve a very rare copy of basically Jing Yuan's. So Jing Yuan wrote a sub-commentary to Chengguan's commentary on the Avatamsaka Sutra in 80 rolls. And this was like a humongous, voluminous thing. And in Korea, even into the Chosun period, people, you know, monks wanted to study this. They really wanted to get Chengguan's commentary, but for some reason, the only way they had it was through Jingyuan's commentary. Well, of course, they got Jingyuan's commentary through Weichun. And, you know, and it sort of... This, you know, in the in in the in the the Zen tradition, in the Sun tradition, there is this, you know, to a certain extent, what people are seeking to, you know, the way that awakening, enlightenment is described, is really the world of enlightenment described in the Avatamsaka Sutra, and um, it's, and so, and certainly in Korea, you see this, many monasteries, the the Huayan sort of the Huayan context of many Buddhist sites is unmistakable. Even small little Buddhist shrines, almost all of them have what is called the Shinjungo, which is the, basically it's a, it's a, a painting of the divine assembly. That's the way I like to translate it. This divine assembly, of course, are the deities that were there when the Avatamsaka Sutra was taught. And the deities of the Avatamsaka Sutra, there was a you know essentially a cult of them, and we have the the cult of them continued to flourish certainly into the lifetime of Uichen, and uh, and so you, I think the Avatamsaka Sutra now in and in Korea itself, like the Diamond Mountains, were viewed as the dwelling place of the Bodhisattva Dharmodgatta. So in in Korea itself. Not only do they have their own Wutaishan, Mount Ode, but the Diamond Mountains were viewed by Fadzong and then later people as being part of this Huayan world scheme, that, you know, places that are described in there. And so there's a, I, you know, I, I suppose some of my colleagues would think I, I overstate this, but I, you know, the, the ways in which Huayan Buddhism have so influenced Korean Buddhism are sort of unmistakable. And, um, and so, and I, and I think if you, and if you read, if even when you read the many of the sun thinkers in the educational system, for instance, that continued through the Chosun period in the sun, in, in the Chogaejong, in the, in the Choge order of Korean Buddhism, you have two kind of two different tracks you have a track that kind of takes you through sort of some of the seminal Chan writings. 
And then you have a track that leads you to doctrines. And the the basically the pinnacle text is the Avatamsaka Sutra. Um, that is the sort of the ultimate, that is sort of the ultimate Buddhist scripture, even in the sun tradition of Korea. And so now granted, there are there are, you know, some of the important monks. Of from the most very current Choge order, who have been the head monks of the tradition, they have really wanted to sort of, sort of make Korean Buddhism much more like the you know kind of follow Linji style, and but you know the, the there's this long strand, this current within Korean Buddhism that many monks are certainly feel a part of that that links them to Genal and Genal's approach to practice has long been that successful. Now, some people have sort of seen that, you know, Weichun tried to bring a synthesis of Buddhism and, and he tried to do it through Huayan and Tiantai and they sort of view him as ultimately failing and that the true synthesis of, of Korean Buddhism came because of Jinal. And I think that's, I mean, it's, it's a it's a very it's a very interesting way of looking at things. I don't think that Weichun failed as much as people think he failed, um, but that that sort of something perhaps we can get into later. But I think it's very interesting that he argues for. I mean, you know, he argues for the preservation of all the kind of doctrinal traditions, and that's sort of Weichun's position, and that's one of the things I try to certainly make clear in the, uh, in the introduction to the book. Now, you note in the book that Weichun himself did not write enough to indicate for scholars to really with certainty understand what his doctrinal views were. But through his writings, through his letters to Jing Yuan and to his students, we can see we can get a pretty good glimpse of his positions about Buddhism. Can you tell us a little bit about that, particularly how Huayin and Tiantai influenced his thought? Well, so when it comes to you know the thing is one or, or Wei Chen's writings are very different than the sorts of things that we have from most monks. Most monks, the conventional way of doing things was you, you have a sutra, there's like you know, a sutra and you write a commentary on it and you basically explain everything. And we don't have that sort of thing for Weichun. And what we do have are these very interesting, you know, we have these very interesting things where um, he, Wei Chen is going to begin a series of lectures on something. And so we have his opening lecture. Now, when I've translated a number of Buddhist commentaries, the funny thing is for, in, for most scholars, I think translating the very beginning of the commentary is usually the hardest because this is where the writer sort of says what they think. And, and it, and it may be, and, and they sort of, sort of bring lots of interesting things together. 
most commentaries, they include a passage of scripture from the sutra, and then the monk or the thinker explicates it. And so it's sort of a lot of kind of question and answer. Well, the kind of things that we have from, from Weichun is we have these kind of speeches. And so we know that Weichun, at least in some point in his career, was lecturing on things like the Ulambana Sutra, which is what is associated with the ghost festival and with sort of making offerings to, to uh, hungry ghosts and stuff like that. He did lectures on the Sutra of Perfect Enlightenment, which was a very key text in many doctrinal traditions. We don't usually think of it as a Huayan text, right? It was sort of shared by all traditions. Now, this is a sutra that is usually thought of as being an apocryphal sutra. The interesting thing is many texts which were crafted for a East Asian audience, for a Chinese audience, these are the ones that were the most important. Um, and then the Sutra of Bequeath Teachings. Um, now, these are not sutras that we usually think of as being Huayan sutras, any of them. And But we have his speeches at the beginning of a lecture series. Now, I would, I would love to have, you know, you know, here we know, we know from his own writings that he spent 20 years of his life lecturing on the Avatamsaka Sutra and Chengguan's commentary but we don't have any straightforward explication about what he thought about that. Um, that's kind of, you know, I, I suppose the, the, um, and the, when we get to his, his addresses, these texts of, where is that? These instructions to new disciples you know, that I have translated basically on, you know, basically page 73 up to 81, we have these instructions to different disciples. And what comes out to me when, when I read these texts is he, we Chen sort of lays out to them that they need to study Yogacara they need to study and know Yogacara doctrines and, and content. They need to study um, texts such as the Lotus Sutra. They need to study and you know texts such as the text on arousing the true nature. He shows that he sort of broadly read, okay, and. He talks about how, you know, he studied the Avatamsaka Sutra, and it kind of depends, you know, what's interesting when we, we sort of, when we look at these writings to his different students, these new disciples, it seems as though he's sort of crafting the message to each individual student to their own kind of predilections, but their own kind of interests as well. And so... And of course, that's what a good mentor does, right? He sees where a particular student's abilities lie and where what sorts of ways that they could be kind of bolstered. And so, um, now, to a certain extent, it, when it comes to the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra itself, right, is a 
compilation. You know, we have there, there's the, there's the chapters on the 10 stages, which had circulated as their own sutras. There's also the final chapter, which is the, um, the entry into the Dharma realm, the Ganda, which, which circulated as the Gandavyuha Sutra in India, but which all kind of became part. Now, the example of Sudana in that last great chapter of the Avatamska Sutra is something that Weecha alludes to. Sudana, he wants to learn, you know, he wants to become a bodhisattva. And he encounters Manjushri, and Manjushri sends him on this quest to study from all kinds of spiritual mentors. These can be gods, these can be bodhisattvas. So he encounters Avalokiteshvara, he encounters, but then he also encounters deities, he also encounters you know the the famous prostitute who sort of that in the sense that with people because of their they sort of they sort of have to he sort of teaches them that you have to use all you have to use all kinds of learn all kinds of expedient means that you can reach out and get to people and that seems to be something that that Weichun is for you know he's now if you're going to if you're going to master all these kinds of things you have to learn all the different kinds of scriptures and all the different kinds of teachings and so you know to be the kind of mentor that if you're going to if you're going to follow the example of a sudana then you have to learn all the teachings and and in this and this is the way in which i think the tiantai teaching and the huayan teaching kind of come together they have different ways of of sort of classifying what the teachings are. And even within that teaching, there is a position for, there are positions for the monastic rules. Um, you know, monks need to learn the rules that they follow. And then there's also, of course, a position for meditation to Wichan. You have to know the you have to know the sutras because when you're meditating, you have to know what it is you're encountering when you encounter it. You know to say that the that the sutras aren't necessary and the commentaries aren't necessary is like you go into this you know this this meditative absorption and then you have no idea what you're encountering and whether it's the sort of thing that you know what should happen next and and where this is taking you. And so to do this without relying on teachings just seems sort of a, a waste of, it, it just sort of seems wasteful in a way and, and not productive um, to each other. It's so fascinating in that regard. In, uh, on a different note, in his writings, you, you come up with a lot of self-reflection and him questioning whether his efforts as a lecturer and, and his pursuits to preserve and propagate the Dharma in many different contexts, whether they're active, actually effective. He, he seems to question himself and also express some concern because it seems that his viewpoint was that the Dharma was in decline 
Can you say a little bit about that, please? Well, I think this is a very human angle of Uichan. And I think certainly in the poetry, it kind of comes out. And, you know, Uichan, it, it, it was standard in Uichan's time for people to believe that they were living in the time of the decline of the Dharma or the time of the final, of the time of the final Dharma. Um, and so, you know, certain, I mean, what's interesting is that the, when we put things in kind of a, a larger kind of historical context, there are these, you know, prophecies, um, you know, there had been prophecies of the decline of Buddhism and, you know, from the, in the mid eighth century in China, of course, we have these large state-sponsored suppressions of Buddhism, the Huichang, you know, the Huichang suppression of Buddhism from roughly between 841 to 846. Um, and this idea, but one of the, one of the ideas that goes along with this is that people themselves, so when you have the time of the true Dharma, the teachings exist, people are able to practice and people make they prog they actually make progress towards their goals towards their spiritual goals of awakening once you move into the time period of the semblance dharma okay the the teachings exist but the abilities of people to really make progress kind of deteriorate Okay, and then kind of when you get into the age of the final Dharma, then, you know, basically people aren't really able to practice appropriately. And, 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 you know, we know that Wee Chen worried about things. We know that he struggled with things. Um, there's a, there's an interesting little passage where he talks about, you know, we, we don't usually think about this. One of my one of my colleagues from graduate school, James Ben, wrote his famous book on burning for the Buddha, talking about talking about self-immolation. You don't think about Uichan being this kind of person. Here he is, a member of the royal family, a, a prince, and yet he burns off one of his fingers. Um, often people burn off their fingers because they are trying to sort of, you know, they're making an offering to the Buddha so much that they will get some kind of an insight. What's interesting is, we, unlike Jinal, Weechan doesn't talk anywhere about having a enlightenment experience. Now, a generation later, or a hundred years later, we know that Jinal is, you know, he has three separate enlightenment experiences. But, of course, maybe it's just the nature of what we have here. I mean, we certain, I mean, we, but we don't have a place that where Weechen explains that I had this enlightenment experience studying this commentary. We have that for Genal, right? He has an enlightenment experience kind of studying concepts from the, I think it's the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Patriarch, and then he has an enlightenment experience Another one studying the um, 
uh, Li Tongxuan's commentary, and then his third one is from studying um, Dao Hui Zonggao's um, you know, recently arrived text, which describes the practice, which we, you know, which we call that, that observing the key word, you know, the, um, the you know, the things like the, the mu koan, the one of, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature? No. And the use of koans to sort of, to sort of facilitate um, awakening and other monks from the later period, like um, the monk that, well, he lived from 1301 to 1382. Gosh, late Cordial period monk. You know, we we have in his writings, he talks about the enlightenment experiences that he had. His name will come to me in a minute, but but we don't have that sort of thing for we for Weichun. And it seems like you know, Weichun has had these great experiences and, and achieved great insights, but he is worried about that preserving the Dharma. And of course, this is one of the reasons why he wants to bring together all of the, the commentaries and the, and the, and the, the writings made by these great masters, because he's afraid that they could be lost. Many of these texts, many of the texts that he has were not generally available in China. And yet on the one hand in China and the feeling that I get that when he went there, I think Jinal was sort of, I mean, I'm sorry, I thought that, I think that Weichun, when he went to these great monastic complexes like Jingyuan's commentary, a complex of Huiyinzi in Hangzhou, or when he went to, um, uh, what is it, Qingguosi, the, you know, the, which was the huge monastic complex located near where, um, uh, uh Jury's funerary pagoda was, I think he was probably blown away by the broadness. I, I don't think we can think that that uh, Qingguosi on Mount Tiantai was only a Tiantai sect place. There were monks doing all kinds of things that were over there, and just the amount of literacy. I mean, in the Song Dynasty, there was an explosion of publishing. And of course, only a fraction of these things have been preserved. But Weichun, I think, is doing this collecting. He's collecting all this stuff so that he's, you know, there's all kinds of kind of curricular material, things today that we would think of. Like, you know, when I was in high school, there was Cliff Notes. And nowadays there's what Spark Notes, you know, if you don't want to read Shakespeare, you can read the Spark Notes online to whatever play you have to read in school, right? Well, there were all kinds of these kinds of texts that gave you the gist of whatever sutra or commentary was out there so that you can see, okay, is this something that I need to study and will help you prepare for the exams that you may need to take to show your proficiency. Weichen's collecting all that kind of stuff. And I think he was sort of blown away. I wish we had more information, more materials available but Weichun gives, you know, I think Weichun wants to create in Koryo the type of sort of rich monastic complex that he, the kind that he was that he was sort of introduced to when he when he was able to take a boat and go over and spent time in Kaifeng in, at the capital of the Northern Song Dynasty, and he was fated by the emperor and the emperor's mother and you know, and given baths and given feasts. And 
was, and he presents his plea. I think he knew beforehand that he wanted to study in Hangzhou because it's quite obvious that Jingyuan is sending him letters and asking Weichun to send him books that are that he doesn't have access to before, long before he goes there. And I think when he goes and just sees, I mean, the amount of stuff that's available, he wants to do that sort of thing um, in Koryo. And, and I think this is what he sort of, I think this is what he sort of tries to do. And to a certain extent, the Korean tradition that we have today, I think, you know, Jinal in a sense owes a debt to Weichun. And, and what's interesting is there's all, there are all kinds of woodblocks and manuscripts, primarily woodblocks in Korea that, you know, more people need to look at. Um, there are things that, you know, there are, there are texts that um, give us some interesting insights into the preservation of, of certain kinds of materials. And I think, you know, Wee Chun sort of plays a part in this because as he went around to different places and hung out, I mean, he hung out at, towards the end of his life, he was hanging out at Hain Monastery, which, of course, at that time did not have a you know, they didn't have the um, the the Koryo Buddhist canon that we think of that exists there today. But I'm sure they had an extensive library at this at this large monastic site, and uh, and you know, Weichen is sort of trying to make these kinds of things available. So, that being said, do how, do you? Is it easy to spot his influence, say, on monastic curricula today in Korea or even in China? Or is that something that's kind of too broad to observe? Well, that is a, a good <laughs> question. Um, it's hard. I mean, because the Avatamsaka Sutra was important in Korea before Weichun, it's hard to say that when it comes to monastic curricula, it's, I mean, it's easy to see how, I think it's, it's partially possible to see how he was influential. What seems interesting to me is that um, some scholars, as we look into sort of the things that individuals, so the general vision that we have for Korean Buddhism is you know, Buddhism was a played a dominant role in the Koryo royal family and legitimating the dynasty, and people, um, and the royal family and other people at court, they commissioned temples and monasteries, and they held all kinds of Buddhist rituals. and And the and the history of the Koryo is quite clear in showing that Buddhist rituals will, were held by the Koryo court frequently. Now, this cost could cost a lot of money. When we get into the late Koryo period, which in this is the time period when the Mongols are sort of running the show, um, and the general view that's becoming kind of dominant in East Asia is that Buddhism is wasteful, it's extravagant, it's you know, it's a waste of resources, and we have this sort of rise of 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 neo-Confucianism. Um in Korea, the scholar officials basically, you know, turn to this 
and they adopt this much more negative view of Buddhism. And the the conventional way that we've looked at Korea is then, you know, people, you know, many people don't even see Korea as a very Buddhist country. My uh, my my son, who's taking this AP geography class, was lamenting that they're talking about Buddhism and the spread of Buddhism, and they talk about Buddhism going from China to Japan. They completely ignore Korea, although the evidence is overwhelming of the important role that Korea played in taking Buddhism to Japan, okay? And people don't even think of Korea as a very Buddhist place, in part because some people think that Confucianism becomes so dominant thereafter. Well, in the mid-16th century, and actually in the late 16th century, we have the, the Imjin War, the what we often call the Hideyoshi Invasion. And Buddhist monks play a major role in turning the tide and, and getting the Japanese off the peninsula. I mean, it was a devastating war. What's interesting is after that time period, as we move into the 17th and 18th centuries, we have this explosion of interest in Buddhism and in Buddhist commentaries and scriptures on the part of Confucian scholars. And it's not just their wives who probably played an important role in sort of preserving the importance of Buddhism in Korea, but there, I mean, we have people having convocations, Huayan convocations, and scholar officials studying Jingyuan's commentary on Chengguan's commentary on the Avatamsaka Sutra. And there was an explosion of interest again in doctrinal Buddhism. Well, those texts only come, you know, in part probably came down to us because of the work of Uichan. And I would speculate that even things such as like one of the great treasures of the Korean Buddhist canon, one of the great treasures of the Korean Buddhist canon is a text, a, a, a text in a hundred rolls called the Fayuan Julin. This is a seventh century encyclopedia of Buddhism. And the law and the, the the best version, the most complete and best version that we have is the Korean version. Well, that book is not listed, it's not a canonical book. Okay, but it is listed in Wechun's catalog. And the woodblocks that we have for it that were carved probably were carved because of Wechun, because it was in his catalog. Okay, it's not part of a regular sutra catalog, but it was in his catalog. And so we probably have that and a number of other books because of, uh, you know, because of Wechun. Um, and wow. so, I don't know, I just find it. It's, it's, you know, these are books that when I'm trying to understand sort of the, you know, the way people practice repentance rituals and, and spells and, and, and things like the general view of how uh, Pure Land Buddhism was understood um, in the seventh century, you know, the texts like the Fayuan Julin give us sort of the, it's, it, this was a commentary, this was a, this is an encyclopedia that has all kinds of passages that sort of explain kind of the mainstream view of things at that time period. And they give us a, a vision of Buddhism, which is not, not sectarian, at least not to me. 
It's so fascinating. And I really hope that more scholars will be intrigued by Korean Buddhism, because as far as I can see that there, there's a wealth of things to be studied and understood, especially in regards to pan-Asian Buddhism, the relationship between China, Korea, and Japan. It's, uh, it's obvious that there's a lot to be studied. Um, we're getting close to the end of our interview, and but I'd like to ask you about um, the Chante school and kind of Wee Chun's legacy in that regard today in, in Korea. Well, that's a good question. Certainly in modern times, a Chante school exists in Korea. And they, they uh, are, of course, the primary funders of Kumguang de Hakyo, and they seem to be doing fairly well. And of course, they trace themselves back. They trace themselves to Wechan. Okay, they 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 call Wechan as the founder of Korean Chante, um, and you know, in part, this goes to well, there are some very intriguing passages and I and I deal with them a little bit in the book where it the it seems they seems to suggest that Wee Chun institutes an examination system. Some scholars, some of my colleagues, they view this as a Tiantai examination and the creation of a Tiantai sect and they want to put it back to Wee Chun. To me, what I the what the way I see this is yes, this is an examination on the on the Lotus Sutra and affiliated with um, essentially uh, Tiantai Juri's interpretations of that, but it's one of multiple examinations. So there's a Huayan exam, there's a, you know, what there's a, a exam on the Avatamsika Sutra, there's an exam on the Lotus Sutra, there's an exam on um sort of Yogacara texts, but, and then there's also an exam, exams dealing with monastic rules. You need to have monks trained in the monastic rules so that they can prepare other monks. And, and then of course you have things on Buddhist rituals as well. And so I don't see these as being sectarian, affiliated in a sectarian fashion. I see these as these are sort of the main traditions, okay? These are kind of the main traditions of, of doctrinal Buddhism where you need to have a knowledge of texts and commentaries or ritual manuals on how to do stuff. And, but, you know, in the modern, you know, in the modern tradition, they want to look back to a founder. I mean, the modern Buddhism in Korea has been highly influenced for good or for bad, because of the colonial period. The, the way that Korean monasteries are, the relationship that Korean monasteries have today with each other, it's a legacy of the colonial period. It's unescapable, okay? And certain, you know, there have been, you know, now with, you know, with freedom, you know, with, with liberation, and freedom of religion, this has led groups to, you know, you know, different Buddhist groups can form. And of course, the dominant Buddhist tradition in Korea is the Choge order, but you have other traditions, you know, there are other traditions as well. And 
the you know the Chente school, the Chente sect in Korea today, they certainly, I mean, you know, WeChen has cachet. Although my gut feeling, and I haven't done, you know, my colleague Sim Vermeersh has done some work. I don't, it's really hard to say that you have any kind of real attempt at a, a, a Chente tradition in Korea mm -hmm. until probably at least 50 years after WeChan. Um, and I think probably, you know, and, and, and I think it's able to become created in a sense because of WeChan. Now, you know, WeChan has, you know, WeChan had connections with many kinds of monks. And there were monks in the Tiantai tradition in China that we have their letters in the, in the addendum to WeChan's collective works. And one of the great Tiantai monks of the time, he's... You know, the, the Tiantai histories written in China claim that Wei Chen was a disciple, but of, of the great Tiantai master of the time. But his letters, in his letters, he doesn't write like a master writing to a disciple. He writes more like a basically kind of a colleague or a friend asking his friend, hey, can you... You know, can you give us some money too? <laughs> can you help us? How can you help us out? So, you know, but as with, you know, with scholarship, I don't know, I think it's, I think it, you know, looking at WeChan has really made me want to kind of challenge this kind of sectarian view. Um, now, the one, one very interesting thing is because the Chente school in Korea is fairly wealthy. One very interesting thing is if you make it down to Hangzhou and go to Hainzi, it has been rebuilt by, with money, of course, from the Chente Order of Korean Buddhism. And there's a huge stele, there's a huge stele there inscribed with Weichan. And there's a statue to Weichan and all kinds of things. I mean, and so... Weichan is a, certainly a big cheese at this very famous monastery down in Hangzhou, which was one of, because it was one of these key trading ports, was a huge port, an important place for, for Buddhism. It was one of the wealthiest and most beautiful cities of the time in Hangzhou. So, all right. We've barely scratched the surface of what your book has to offer, and I hope the listeners will take the opportunity to purchase a copy or check it out from their library and take some time to read what we've talked about today. I think they will be pleased and learn a lot about Korean Buddhism. Uh, before I let you go, I'm wondering what projects you're working on and if you can share a little bit about those prospective projects with us. I'm, I'm working on the proofs of my upcoming, my book that's coming out a little bit later this year. It's called Aspiring to Enlightenment, Pure Land Buddhism in Shilla, Korea. And so this book will be out a little bit later. Now, work on this project has spanned much of my career. And it's basically, you know, it's it's looking at Pure Land Buddhism in Korea in its East Asian context. And so, of course, you can't understand the doctrines of Pure Land Buddhism, primarily focusing on Yambul or Nyenfo. But also the you know, the the ten thought moments, the shurnyen, 
you know, that, um, and there's a number of practices that are affiliated with pure land practice, the doctrinal tradition. Anyways, I sort of put this in the context of the, of the East of the Chinese tradition. But then the very interesting thing is pure land Buddhism. And I, and I kind of make this argument. I mean, pure land Buddhism, like many forms of Buddhism, we were talking about this before it becomes kind of a part. You can do pure land within the Huayan tradition, within the Huam tradition. And so in Korea, all these things kind of merge together. Certainly in the, um, the, you know, the practices and vows of Samantabhadra, which was one of these, um, the, the chapter on the practices and vows of Samantabhadra was a, was a text that was part of the Avatamsaka Sutra in one of these later translations but it weaves into it pure land practice and, and, re, and rebirth in Amitabha's pure land. And, and Korean monks kind of go in that direction. But in a sense, the inheritors of Shilla's pure land tradition were monks in medieval Japan. And so anyways, this book kind of deals with doctrines. It deals with the, with the, the major Buddhist thinkers like Wonhyo and Gyeonghung and Babui and others, Hyunye. But it also um, uh, talks about the tensions, and there's a lot of doctrinal debate between, you know, which pure land is superior, Sukhavati, the pure, Amitabha's pure land in the West, or Tushta heaven. And so it kind of puts all these kinds of things into context, the relationship, the practices that are shared between the, the worship or the cult of Amitabha and the cult of Maitreya and so forth. So that, that book will be coming out a little, in a little bit. And I'm also, I just, just finished my first draft yesterday of the, um, the, um, of a, a translation of the Huayan Jing Wanda. This is Taisho 1873 questions and answers on the Avatamsaka Sutra. Long, this, this text has long had traditionally been ascribed to Fadzong, but Japanese and Korean scholars over the course of the last 30, 40 years have basically shown that what it really is, is a, it's a variant edition. It's a variant edition of a record of the Korean Buddhist monk, Uisang. This is the friend of Wonhyo, Uisang, who had gone to study Huayan Buddhism in Tang China with Juryan and returned to Korea, and he lectured, and his disciples recorded his lectures and and the you know the the questions and answers that dealing with the Avatamsaka Sutra and practice in the Huayan tradition and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm I'm translating that for a, a new series that the uh, Choge Order of Korean Buddhism is publishing. So I've got to you know. I'm finishing up. I've got to sort of, I've finished the first draft and I've got to go back through and make check, you know, check on things. And hopefully that'll be out within the next few years. So, um, you know, bit by bit, you know, the, um, you know, more about Korean Buddhism is becoming available and it's rich relationship. I mean, it, unfortunately, you know, Korean Buddhists have, you know, we, during the colonial period, Certain proponents of Japan basically said 
Korean Buddhism doesn't offer anything to the East Asian tradition. That was sort of what Takahashi Toru and other people kind of said. They were good in the Shilla period, but after that, eh, really not that much. And so in the aftermath, Koreans have been trying to say our tradition is unique. Well, Korean Buddhism is really kind of its best. And, and Lou Lancaster kind of talked about, wrote a great article many years ago. You can't say that Korean Buddhism is too different from either Chinese or Japanese Buddhism, but it, it has its sort of unique characteristics and flavor. And as over the past 20, 30 years, 20 years or so, as I've been engaging with colleagues in Korea, I've been trying to help them see that the best way to talk about Korean Buddhism is in sort of its, in the way it shares and participates in this shared Sinitic Buddhism, this shared East Asian Buddhism. And the Korean tradition is so rich and brings us, it preserves so much from earlier kinds of practices. Um, they had a different development than countries like Japan and different developed in China, but yet they preserve in many ways things which are very fascinating from the tradition. And I hope that some of these kinds of things are brought out in, uh, in my writings. It sounds really fascinating, and I hope if you have the opportunity that you'd be willing to come back on the show and talk about your future works. I would love to do that. That would be great fun. That's great. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure to hear you speak today, and uh, we look forward to seeing what you have next. Take care. Thank you.